Welcome to Moving Upstream, a podcast by Prevention Institute in Oakland, California. Each episode, we look closely at a health or equity issue in the news to understand how we got here and to find a healthier, more equitable way forward. I'm Lisa Fujia Parks. Today, I'm talking to Reggie Moore about community leadership to prevent violence. Now, if your work relates to health or youth or preventing violence, you may already know Reggie. And if you don't, you're welcome, because he is someone to know. He is a visionary and transformational leader for peace and social justice and public health. He serves as the director of the Office of Violence Prevention in the city of Milwaukee's health department. He's a Prevention Institute board member, and I've had the privilege of partnering with Reggie over the last few years, and I'm also honored to call him a friend. Welcome, Reggie. Thank you. Rather than read your bio or share some of the many wonderful things that people have said and written about you, I thought I would ask you to describe yourself. Well, and thank you for um, having me as a part of the podcast. <laughs> Describing myself, that is a complex question. <laughs> um, I'll start born in and raised in Milwaukee. Uh, my parents are from the south side of Chicago. I um, have to be clear about that because folks from Chicago know that, you know, you're either west or south side. No knock to folks who are from other parts of the city, but just the area that they grew up in was the epicenter um, of the Black Panthers in Chicago, the El Rookets and the Blackstone Rangers. And so in terms of their sort of political and community mindedness that I think, you know, was instilled in me is something that they obviously brought with them when they moved to Milwaukee. And so I've been in Milwaukee, you know, all my life. I've worked around the country, but have always and will always call Milwaukee home, um, no matter where I travel, no matter where I, I work or serve. You know, in terms of the issue of violence and, and community organizing, that's just been a part of my upbringing, a part of my life, and something that at a very early age was instilled in terms of being aware and conscious of what was happening around me, what was happening to people that I care about, and really understanding and, and coming to understand, you know, my role and responsibility and being a part of the shaping of the the world that I was born into. So community leadership and organizing is really in your background. It's in your folks' background. It's part of who you are. And that's perfect. Today's topic is about community leadership and organizing to prevent violence, and in particular, the public health system and what it can do to support the power of community in creating safety. So you said generally that you have been aware and active and engaged. Can you just tell a little bit more about your leadership trajectory, starting with how did you become a community organizer focused on youth? Yeah, I think at a very early age, I remember a very clear sort of turning point in my neighborhood. And at the time, I didn't really understand what influenced that turning point. But I saw a stark difference in the way that my neighbors engaged with each other, the level of violence that was occurring in my neighborhood, the fact that people stopped coming out and stopped, you know, communicating with each other as much as I remembered, you know, in terms of the earlier years of of my growth in the city. That tipping point was the crack cocaine epidemic. And I remember around that time, you know, a lot of my friends, we noticed that difference. And we went to the property manager, and I grew up, you know, in public housing in Milwaukee. And we went to the the property manager and said, hey, we want to hold a block party, you know, to get people back outside. And I was about 10 or 11 years old at the time. 
and the property manager kind of looks and luckily she wasn't discouraging but she says okay you got to go and get other adults who will support this and so if they support it then I'll support it so you know me and my friends went door to door and we got I would say about at least 60% of the residents in the apartment complex to um support it and you know people violent you know offered to volunteer bring food play games etc and it really was for me a turning point in understanding the power of mobilization and really turning the idea of being conscious and aware of what's happening around you and understanding that you know the world that you're born into doesn't have to be the world that you die in that you actually can shape it you can influence it you can change the conditions that aren't natural to what a community and what a healthy community should look like so that's when i say i caught the organizing bug around that age can you talk a little bit about Milwaukee's work on violence prevention and also the blueprint for peace? Right. The Office of Violence Prevention was actually started in 2008, and a lot of its focus was on domestic violence um, and sexual assault prevention, and also some engagement in terms of like mayors against illegal guns and a lot of policy level work. So in 2015, uh, Milwaukee, like similar sized cities, around the country saw a spike in non-fatal shootings and homicides and, you know, really jumped from, I believe it was 74 homicides to 146 in that one year. And so rightfully, the community began asking, what are we going to do about this? And it was around that time that my predecessor had announced her retirement. And so it created an opportunity for the city council and the mayor to take the office in a different direction. You know, I'm assuming there were several folks who were consulted about that, and I happened to be one of them. One of my conditions in taking on this role was that the community would have to define what the purpose and priorities of this office needed to be. That, as a community organizer, is a core value, and as a public servant, I believe we should be responsive and led by the community that we serve. Um, we don't just serve the community as recipients. We serve with the community. We serve for the community because we're accountable um, to the community. And in terms of an office of violence prevention in a city that, in a state that has the second highest homicide rate of African Americans in the country, I think it's critically important that the community define what violence prevention means, how to measure its impact, uh, and what its priorities should be from a policy and investment perspective. The way that we decided to do that was engaging the community in development of the blueprint for peace. And partnering with the Prevention Institute was critical in that effort of bringing a level of expertise and experience from around the country and helping other communities engage in this process and engaging a steering committee of high-level decision makers from the mayor, the county executive, the superintendent of schools, to youth organizers, to you know mothers who had been directly impacted by gun violence as a part of the hub of this wheel to ensure that the voices of the community were centered in this process. We understand that perhaps in some communities you may have the mayor, the fire chief, the police chief, and a few clergy go in a room and come out with a plan. We were animated in Milwaukee that we didn't want to do it that way, and we wanted to engage in a process with integrity that really, again, centered and elevated the voices of people directly impacted by violence and have those voices and those ideas heard by people who have the decision-making power to allocate resources and policies to ensure that these strategies are supported and implemented. We engage in a very aggressive year-long process that involves surveys, stakeholder interviews, events, 
there's a very iterative process between community engagement and steering committee conversations to really reflect on what we were hearing from the community and being responsive to those ideas and strategies. And so that resulted in a blueprint that contains six goals and 30 core strategies that look at both upstream, immediate, and what I will call recovery strategies related to violence in the city. We understand the importance and power of primary prevention, but also when you look at a city and a state and a community that has not invested equitably in prevention, you have a great deal of recovery and reconnection that needs to happen and healing that needs to happen. And so the blueprint really encompasses strategies that incorporate prevention, intervention, and healing in the ideas that the community identified as priorities. And it also didn't shy away from understanding the importance of addressing systemic violence and not just looking at interpersonal violence. Both are equally important, but unfortunately, a lot of communities shy away from calling out and addressing the systemic and structural factors that perpetuate and create environments for violence to flourish. So when we look at policies, when we look at disinvestment, all of those things have an impact on neighborhoods and on families for generations. When you look at the history of redlining in Milwaukee and you look at the connection between segregation and gun violence, you know, Milwaukee is a microcosm of that. And we have to confront and understand that, yes, we we didn't get here overnight, but there were also very intentional decisions that were made by policymakers that have created conditions that resulted um, in the disparities and the trauma that we live in today. One of the things that I'm most proud of about the Blueprint, which are many, is number one, the fact that, you know, this is the people's plan. And this was informed by the pain, the ideas, the passion, the imagination of the community. And number two, that it didn't shy away from confronting issues of structural racism and, and structural violence that are critical if we're talking about really making long-term and upstream change when we talk about violence prevention. Can you describe a few of the specific strategies that might give listeners a little bit more of an idea of what that looks like on the ground? For example, under goal one, stop the shooting, stop the violence, there are three strategies specific to law enforcement within this particular goal that the community called for, one of which is looking at the police department engaging in training in the areas of crisis intervention, fair and impartial policing, and procedural justice as an example of that. Also expanding implicit bias and microaggression reduction and de-escalation training to include not only law enforcement, but also first responders, mental health providers, community health workers, and other partners. When we talk about systemic violence, if you have a social worker, for example, that lacks a level of cultural humility, that engages in very judgmental and hostile behavior with a, a community resident, then that is a form of violence that creates a level of distrust and disconnection from a system that really should be accountable to that resident. We have to account for that and we have to make sure that because that can create that disconnection and that distrust also can breed a, um, a level of behavior that can increase the risk for that resident or the child in that family. And we see the same thing when we talk about immigrant communities and, and undocumented uh, residents who, when it comes to issues of domestic violence or other forms of violence, underreport because of fear of persecution or harassment as a result of their immigrant status. And so those are all things that when we talk about the, the impact of policies and practices, particularly by public institutions, how those things happen 
have to be accounted for, and we have to ensure that there aren't either intended or unintended consequences that actually increase the presence of harm in our community. The blueprint was launched at the end of 2017, and I understand that rates of community violence have been decreasing since then. What do you think has contributed to those reductions in particular rates of homicides? I think there are a number of factors, and I know that the Prevention Institute knows better than most that it's sometimes very hard in terms of to correlate the specific factors that may contribute to reduction in in non-fatal shootings and homicides. It can be everything from, you know, the weather being a factor to improved coordination to specific interventions that are happening on the ground. And I think when we look cumulatively over the period of time and the things that have happened in Milwaukee, you know, one of the things that we pay attention to is sort of what has changed and what has not changed. At minimum, what we can what we can articulate is one, the fact that we have increased coordination, we have a comprehensive plan, and we have a community that is paying attention to what's happening when it comes to public safety in a way that it hasn't before. And when there's a shooting or a homicide, there's a culture shift that has happened in the way that the media even reports on violence in the community, where they have been reaching out a lot more, trying to get a prevention message as it relates to not just reporting on the crime that occurred, but also are pairing those stories with how is the community fighting back? How is the community working together in a way to prevent both intentional and unintentional um, shootings? We've had a, a high level of young people who, or increasing level of young people who have gotten access to unattended firearms and have accidentally either shot or killed themselves or other siblings, and in some cases, their parents. Gun safety is something that has also been an increasing part of the conversation. And so when we look at the messaging that we've been able to um, support, even in what I would call indigenous or grassroots messaging, like the Guns Down Milltown campaign, which was started by a local artist who basically was just printing T-shirts to try to get the message out. And we said, well, let's partner to amplify that message because it's a message that resonates with the community. It resonates with the blueprint. So we were able to get it on billboards, on bus shelters, and are also running uh, radio ads to really promote pro-peace messaging and a pro-peace lifestyle. We believe all of those things are contributing factors to the reduction in our fatal shootings and homicides that we're seeing in the city. And the community rightfully now asking, as they asked in 2015, like, okay, what are we going to do about this spike in homicides and our fatal shootings? Now the question is, how do we continue this positive momentum in reducing violence in our city and are now questioning the level of investment and the types of policies required to really support and amplify the promise of violence prevention. The thing that has changed in terms of a core variable is the fact that you have more people across systems and across community partners who are working together. When you have, you know, emerging interventions like 4-1 for Life, which is a violence interruption program that's based on the Cure Violence model, where we've hired folks from the community with a background from the streets who have a level of courage and credibility to be able to anticipate, intervene, and prevent gun violence. And then also with our hospital responder element of that program, being able to respond 
to shooting survivors at, in the hospital at a time where they are most open to hearing a message around perhaps changing their lives and getting support and stopping the cycle of violence and reducing the risk of re-injury or a fatality as a result of ongoing conflict and gun violence in their own lives. And so, so far there's been 47 shooting survivors who've been referred to the program and 100% of them have accepted the engagement of 4-1 for Life. And that's on top of the 42 interruptions that the team has been a part of, meaning very specific, incredible conflicts that had a high likelihood of resulting in some level of gun violence. When you think about the cost of treating one gunshot wound being approximately, you know, $100,000 just for the hospital care. It's upwards of $1 million in terms of court costs and police costs, investigation costs, everything that goes into when you have a single victim and a single perpetrator of an act of gun violence. The cost and the return on investment when we talk about prevention is hard to dispute. In terms of the momentum that we're starting to see, we want to see that continue. We feel like the blueprint is playing a a significant uh, part in that trend. The 414 Life work, the interruption work, it sounds like you have been able to launch a very solid program that's already doing wonderful life-saving work. So congratulations on that. Thank you. We talked about how violence, you know, the root causes of violence really are in those isms, structural racism, and other inequities and injustices that have been going on for many generations, and that the disproportionate burden of community and interpersonal violence really falls on these very communities and neighborhoods that suffer the most from these inequities and injustices. When you talk about this interruption work, working with gunshot victims and their families and the communities that are witnessing and living these types of experiences, how do you hold the pain and the loss and the suffering and the righteous anger around these issues? And how do you hold and work with that pain and anger in a way that is part of this fuel for collective action? Um, I think that's probably one of the hardest parts of this work. I know for me personally, attending funerals of children who've been killed in our community has been the hardest part of of this work. And, you know, it's not in a job description. It's not an expectation that we do that, but it's a part of who I am. It's a part of who my team is. Everyone who works in the Office of Violence Prevention has had some direct personal connection to this issue and are all very clear about our service to the people and to the public in this role. And so we understand that our work will always exceed the boundaries of a job description and the boundaries of any time-bound hours of, of city operation because, you know, violence, unfortunately, doesn't sleep and pain doesn't sleep. And we obviously, you know, and I encourage and create space for balance, but at the same time, we understand our responsibility and our commitment to being there for people, with people, how they need and how they how they request. In terms of the level of pain, I think is also 
balanced out by the level of resilience that we see in families who channel that pain and channel it into their activism for peace in the city or their activism or engagement on issues that are important to them in honor of their loved ones. We see that with Imani Robinson's, you know, mom, he was a 17-year-old who was killed on his way, you know, to the corner store walking with two other children and two adults ended up in a shootout right in front of the corner store and he was caught in a crossfire. We've been sponsoring and supporting an event that, you know, is led by his mom and other community partners to really honor his life in that particular neighborhood. And it's a neighborhood that he grew up in. When we talk about healing, you know, she's channeling her pain in a way to not only remember and honor her son, but to also heal a neighborhood. We saw the same thing with the Sherman Park unrest and the killing of, of Seville Smith, who was shot by a Milwaukee police officer, which, you know, ultimately led to civil unrest in, in the Sherman Park neighborhood. And unfortunately, uh, I'd like to say I was there from the first brick to the last fire in the sense that I was on the scene as things escalated. By the time I arrived at about 6 p.m., I'd had no idea that this shooting had happened at 12, 1 o'clock in the afternoon. And that city officials had been out there, other folks had been out there. And the fundamental issue, and when I go back and I watch the videos, you know, for folks who were live streaming or recording it, is the community asking for information that they, they weren't receiving. And in some cases, representatives of law enforcement almost, you know, responding in an antagonistic and comedic way to young people who are screaming and crying, asking about the status of Seville Smith. And when I think about what escalated the situation on that day, it was a breakdown in human connection. It was a breakdown in human dignity. It was a breakdown in the lack of recognizing the cumulative pain, not only in Milwaukee, but nationally as it related to systemic and system-involved violence and the cries of families and residents who had lost, lost loved ones to police-involved violence without any semblance of justice. And especially in a place like Milwaukee, where residents have been marching the year before every weekend peacefully through the streets of downtown and other neighborhoods, calling for justice for Dontre Hamilton, who was shot 14 times outside of a Starbucks. I think it demonstrated the fact that Sherman Park and what happened in Sherman Park was a reflection, I think, of the pain and the unheard cries in our entire city when you have the business community and the philanthropic community and, and other folks kind of asking what happened and how do we prevent it from happening again, the role of the Office of Violence Prevention on that day and on that night was really around, I don't think there was, it wasn't by accident that there weren't, you know, that no one else was killed, unfortunately, besides Seville that night, despite all of the damage and everything else that was done over a 48-hour period, things could have been much worse. And in other cities, we've seen that. But I think the importance of understanding the root causes of a community's pain and the root causes of a community's trauma is critically important and being responsive you know to those issues and having leadership that's responsive to those issues is critically important when i think about a pivotal point 
in serving in this role and understanding the role of the Office of Violence Prevention, number one, in translating that pain and communicating that pain to other system and business community and other partners in the city who are concerned but lack that connection with the community, but not only in communicating that on the community's behalf, but also creating spaces for the community to communicate their pain, their ideas, and their vision directly. And that was in the midst of the blueprint planning process. And so when we think about the importance and value of that process, we didn't stop prevention and say, hey, you know, we're, gonna, we're not going to do any, any work while we do the blueprint. We were practicing the blueprint as it was being built, and we were modeling what the blueprint was calling for and why it was critically important to understand that we had to have a plan that was comprehensive of dealing with the structural and systemic issues that we understand create the conditions that perpetuate the interpersonal conflicts that lead to violence that we see. When you look at the areas that have the highest rates of violence in terms of gun violence and you overlay that, it is also the same areas that have the highest concentration of mass incarceration, also have the highest levels of poverty in the city. And so you can't separate those things out. You have to understand and we have to address these things simultaneously. You know, in terms of the framework, for example, that the Prevention Institute has about connecting the dots against all different forms of violence, because you'll have a person who's at high risk of being a shooter also engaged in domestic violence in the same house. And so, you know, understanding, one, the causes of that trauma and the pain in that individual's life that has never been transformed, so it's constantly transferred both to people close to him and to people that, you know, he may be in conflict with in the street. We have to start addressing the production of trauma in our community, not just responding to it on the back end. I so appreciate what you are conveying and all that you are holding and and how you do that. Are there other examples that you can share where community members are really taking leadership in in doing the work of building peace? Absolutely. One would be Andre Lee Ellis and his We Got This program. And um, it was a program that started about eight years ago now where on Ninth and Ring, which at the time had high levels of of homicides and non-fatal shootings, one night a shooting had occurred and he went outside and saw the guy in the street and stayed with him until the paramedics came and decided in that moment that he, you know, he had a role to play in trying to make his block safer. He would start paying young men $20 on a Saturday morning. They had to be there on time at 8 o'clock. It started with five boys. They would get trash bags, and they would just clean up the area. And he would talk with them as well uh, before they went out and just impart words of wisdom and love to them. However, it got to a point, you know, where he said, look, you know, it's 15 boys out here you know, the next weekend. And so then he changed it into a campaign where to say, look, black men in this community need to step up and meet black boys where they are and to show up and invest in them monetarily and by giving their time. And so he would call on on men in the community to show up with $20 every Saturday by 12 o'clock when their shift ended, pay these young men $20 for their service. That program is still continuing to this day. Andre Ellis has been featured um, on the Steve Harvey Show. 
at least 100 young men have graduated from high school in that time. And, it, you know, it, it's gotten upwards of 100, in some cases 150 boys showing up over the past few years every Saturday from 8 a.m. to 12 p.m. And always men in the community, he eventually opened it up to anybody in the community that wanted to donate the $20. And it's because it just got to that point where the volume was so large that support was needed. And you had people driving from the suburbs, you know, who were hearing about this organic resident-led effort. And it evolved from just doing the cleanup aspect to actually developing a community garden on the corner of Ninth and Ring. It's a beautiful space. It has uh, planting beds and lighting, and there's all kinds of, of vegetables that, that grow in there, and there's, like, composting that's happening. And so it really has become a transformative space in that neighborhood. And within the first three years of the presence of this effort, violence in that block and within a two-block radius of that area dropped significantly just by something happening for four hours on a Saturday morning with 100 young men in that community who really needed to be shown love and support the most. That is a core example of what it means for a local resident to take ownership of his block and, and to say, I'm going to do my part. And you don't have to have a foundation. You don't have to have a grant. You don't have to have all the other things that we're told we need to make a difference. 501c3, they're 501c3 now because it's grown to the point where the city has donated vacant land in the area. And, you know, he wants to build an industrial kitchen so that the food grown in the garden can also be used in a culinary arts program. You have chefs in the city who are donating their time uh, working with the young men, providing employment opportunities, and even the, some of the young men who've gone off to college or other areas of their lives in the, around the country or world are coming back and talking to the other young men who are in the program now. And it's hard to even call it a program. I feel like it even diminishes it calling it a program. It really is an example of what a community should be. And there should be an Andre Ellis and a, and a community garden on every block in the city. And so that's, that's what resident-led violence prevention looks like. What a beautiful story. I wonder if one of our listeners wants to turn that into a children's book. That's what came to mind for me. What a beautiful story. And I know that in Milwaukee, there are so many similar stories that are part of this building a community of peace. So thank you for sharing that. I also know that in the blueprint and in the work, there are roles for government agencies, elected officials, commissions, and so on. You've been incredibly thorough in your engagement and communication that really everyone needs to play a role. So what are the roles of government and how should government work with community to create peace? I think the juncture that we're at now as a community is Again, we're starting to see the momentum of what violence prevention can produce, and that's with minimum investment. Now you have an opportunity to say, do we double down on what's working, or do we continue the status quo? We have residents who are launching campaigns to really look at the city budget, who during the state budget process were showing up to public budget hearings and talking about the importance and value of prevention. This is where really the rubber meets the road to say, okay, we're testing interventions like 4 for Life and, and the Trauma Response Initiative that are showing an impact. Do we need to do more of that? And what's required to do more of that? The role of government is to be responsive of that. 
and to listen intently. It's important not to just create events and opportunities to listen when it's just in the self-interest of, you know, sometimes we'll do a listening session on a particular issue at a particular moment. Like listening has to be the practice of government. It's something that should be embedded in the culture of public servants to show up and to be present and to be accessible to wherever the community is calling and coming together around issues that are important to it. That is something that I also believe is a critical role, is there has to be a culture shift in the way that public service is done, not only in Milwaukee, but around the country, in a way that's responsive, in a way that's present. We have to get out of the mode of passive government and passive public service. We have to be present. We have to be engaged. We have to be compassionate. Most importantly, we have to be responsive. Listening is, is the again, the core and continuous practice that we have to embody, but most importantly, we also have to be responsive to what we've heard. Because now, once you've heard something, you can't unlearn it. Once you know something, you can't unknow it. You are now responsible for whatever has been conveyed to you. And oftentimes, it is the pain and the ideas and the dreams of a community and its greatest hope for the city that it wants to live, work, and pray and play in. And so if we are not responsive to that, I see that as a continuing act of violence and a continuing act of trauma to really have asked the community what we should be doing to make Milwaukee a stronger and safer city and not be responsive to that. And that's not just a city question alone. That's a county question. That's a state question. And it's a federal question. When people ask, what is the cost of prevention? My response is, what, what is the cost of your life? What is the value of a human life? If we can invest in stopping a young person from unnecessarily being shot or a mother from unnecessarily being killed or any other form of violence that harms an individual, a neighborhood, a school, or a community, I can't put a price tag on that. But what I do know is that we have not equitably and fairly invested in prevention to the degree that we've invested in cops, cages, and corpses. What we want to see as a community is a city and a state and a county that is committed to investing in prevention instead of pain. That's what I believe the role of government and the public sector in this work and really creating opportunities to leverage resources for philanthropy and individuals in our community that also want to invest in prevention because people see the power and importance of it. Law enforcement has a critical role to play. This isn't in opposition to law enforcement, but it's really looking at, and law enforcement leaders around the country, many would agree that the issues that they're encountering are systemic and structural in terms of poverty, mental health, etc. And in many cases, they aren't equipped to respond to those things, and they're looking for help. They understand prevention to the degree that we can invest in prevention in a way that can reduce harm in our communities, in our families, in our schools, and in our neighborhoods. That is a question that the public sector stands poised to answer. I've seen well-intentioned local leaders, including from public health departments, say similar things. And, you know, I can imagine them really appreciating and agreeing with what you just described as the role of the public servant. And then I've seen these very same leaders then exhibit behaviors that I would consider end up reinforcing power over and control of communities in this work. What advice would you give to someone who you think wants to serve in a way that supports community voice and leadership, but perhaps may not see 
the ways in which they are undermining that. What advice would you give to someone in that type of a position? I think it's important to be consistently self-aware and also create opportunities for feedback. And it's important not to just stay in an echo chamber and only get feedback from people that either align or agree with your perspective. I will take interviews, I will engage, and I will go to all parts of this city where there are people who don't believe in prevention or people who believe that the blueprint for peace is, quote-unquote, soft on crime or is going to take too long to have an impact. And I, with humility, sit with them and listen to what their concerns are, what their fears are. And oftentimes people fear loss more than they fear change. What I try to do is to be responsive to the concerns that they're expressing. And even in communities where people agree with and get prevention, I think from when you look at elected officials or people who have control of resources and who also have the authority um, and ability to create policy, is to ensure that beyond you know, lip service or giving a nod to the blueprint to say, where have you created investment for advancing the strategies in the blueprint? Where have you created um, or leveraged policies that have been called for in the blueprint? And how are you showing up or engaging in communities that are either implementing strategies in the blueprint or calling for support for actually implementing strategies in the blueprint. And that's where the rubber meets the road. To your point, it has to go beyond the words and has to actually result in policies and resources and, and advocacy for making the blueprint real. From a public health perspective, even in the public health community, it's been a journey to recognize the impact and the, and the importance of these issues that primarily impact, you know, they impact all of us, but they disproportionately impact communities of color. That we're always, I think, as a sector on a journey, and it's really important that it's not just about taking steps forward, but in some cases it's about taking leaps forward. And those leaps may require people to be uncomfortable or, you know, to confront our own blind spots and our own deficits in a way that call us to a higher level of accountability and responsiveness. What do you consider are some of the greatest successes of this blueprint for peace. And you talked about what is hardest for you. What has been the most meaningful for you and what are you most proud of? In terms of the blueprint, I I think it's created a movement for prevention in Milwaukee in a way that's never been seen before. There have been initiatives and efforts and conversations around violence, but in terms of creating a cross-sector, cross-level movement where people are talking about prevention, people are acting on prevention, and people are advocating for resources for prevention in a way that is unprecedented. And I think that also ties into one of the things that I'm most proud of is the fact that one of the challenges is getting the community to believe that violence is preventable, that homicide and death are not inevitable, but that we can actually do something to reduce gun violence in our community. That is one of the things that I'm definitely proud of is the level of leadership by the community that didn't just stop with the planning process, but has continued with elected officials, with community organizations, with activists, with media, people doing entire series and stories on the work of violence prevention in Milwaukee in very powerful and profound ways. Um, And the levels of connections and relationships that 
have been established as a result not only of the planning process, but just the ongoing work of advancing the Blueprint for Peace in Milwaukee. I wanted to just ask if you had any final words that you wanted to share. And in particular, in closing, one thing that comes to mind is, are there words of support or encouragement that you can offer to others who are already deep into this work or who want to deepen their work on violence prevention and the creation of of safety? I would just say, you know, never give up. Surround yourself with people who can hold you up when you feel like you can't take another step to understand that things will ebb and flow. There may be, you know, weeks, months, or even a year where there's an increase um, in violence in your community, and to understand that the goal of this work is not just the absence of violence, but the presence of opportunity, the presence of a thriving community. It's a pretty low standard in terms of a, a community, in terms of keeping you know children alive. That should be that should be a core standard, right? We have to raise the bar in terms of our expectations to say every child should have a right to a safe um, and healthy family and community. But raising that bar would be and also access to opportunities to thrive. And that that is what I would challenge, you know, my peers, my counterparts around the country and that I challenge myself with every day is to say, what is a vision beyond staying alive? There are a lot of people in our community who are just getting by, given the conditions that we're living in. And we shouldn't have, you know, we weren't born to just get by. I believe that we were created for greater and we have to demand the resources, the policies, and the opportunity to be able to do that. I would just encourage people to stay encouraged, and I thank you for this opportunity. Thank you so much for your greatness, Reggie, and for spending time with us today and sharing your wisdom. And thank you to our audience for joining us for this episode of Moving Upstream. To learn more about today's show and about Prevention Institute's work on community safety and violence prevention, please visit our website at preventioninstitute.org. Our community violence prevention work is supported by the Langloth Foundation. We would love to hear your ideas and feedback about this podcast. Find us on Twitter. We're at Prevention Inst. That's Prevention I-N-S-T.